Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Veris Age Institute colleague, Ed Class. On today's show, folks, we are talking about behavioral biases. Hey, Ed. Hello, Ron. What a week. What a week. What a week what a I'm week. having. Oh, yes. boy. So tell us about this new experiment that you have running at the moment. <clears throat> yes, we are out on LinkedIn Live for the first time. This is gonna, we're going to experiment with this today and see how this goes. So far, so good. We did a test earlier today. And if uh, we get some good reaction to this, we might uh, keep it around for a while. But there's lots of alternatives here. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll figure this out once we, we get rolling on it. But uh, I think it might be fun to, to interact a little bit more with our, our audience on a live basis, bring, increase those, uh, those show likes from a live perspective, and get feedback in real time. So yeah, happy, yeah, happy. So yeah. Please, folks, if you have any feedback, if you see this on LinkedIn, let us know. And uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to hear from you. So, Ed, one of our listeners, speaking of feedback, uh, Gear from uh, Norway, right? I, yes, Norway. Yeah, mm -hmm. Norway. Yep. Sent us this book that he, I guess he was taking some course, and they distributed this book called Influences, Influences and Irrationalities of the Human Mind by Ogilvy's Behavioral Sciences Practice. Now, this would be Ogilvy in the UK, and of course, the chairman of Ogilvy in the UK is or vice chairman, I think his title officially is is Rory Sutherland, two-time guest on The Soul of Enterprise. And it's a short little book, uh, and it lists 29 of what they say are the most subtle and powerful nudges. And in the opening, it says, uh, we are combining gravitas of academic understanding with application of real-world communications. You know, Roy's been a big believer for a long time that marketing agencies are going to have to become behavioral economists if they want to stay relevant or at least get a better working understanding of human behavior than they've had. He said, you know, in the past, we know how advertising's work, advertising works. Now we have to understand how humans make decisions. So that's been a key thing of him, you know, on our show when he was on and in his book, Alchemy and all of that. So big believer in, uh, you know, what's it called? Um, What's the, uh, it's like Darwin psychology, evolutionary, evolutionary, biology, uh, ev yep. evolutionary psychology, psychology, right? mm -hmm. Jonathan Haidt and all of those books that he always talks about. Um, and this is kind of an extension of that. So it's a short little book, but you know, as I was reminded of what Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's bridge partner said, you know, he said, if economics isn't behavioral, I don't know what the hell is. <laughs> Yeah, so is is behavioral economics redundant? And to a certain extent, it is, right? Because economics is the, is sometimes defined as the study of of, uh, of human behavior under conditions of scarcity, right? So, 
Yep. At least that's how the Austrians. There's all sorts mm-hmm. of really interesting definitions of, of of economics when you when you go through the literature, but uh, definitely human behavior is is in there. <laughs> oh, absolutely, it's, human action uh, the way yeah, that, that yeah. as described by uh, Mises and and, uh, and Hayek. So, mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, Robin Crusoe uh, alone on the island doesn't really interact with others so there's no real formal economy there's individual trade-offs he's gonna have to make but he's not interacting with others so there's Mm -hmm. there's no human component there so much yeah well we're not going to take all through to through 29 of these run right no 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 no. no way we could yeah we could do it would be too too long to get through that so what's your plan to work our way through this and we've been through uh some of these on our prior shows like mr spock and first homer simpson and things like that so we've we've done prior shows on this but um just the ones that struck out to me ed were uh chunking you know you're i know you talk about chunking in terms of project management and giving people you know secrete defined tasks to do in, in maybe a sequence and they're more likely to do them the example they used was you know when you book a, a an air ticket with ryanair which is a low cost carrier you know you'll get some ridiculous like one euro you know to italy but then once you get in there and you start oh well, if i want to check a bag if i want to carry on a bag if i want to do this if i want to do that and then all of a sudden you're up to 30 or 40 euro and the idea is the more they can get you drawn into the site and plan your trip and be thinking about that trip to Italy, assuming it's a vacation type of thing, you're going to be invested in it and you're less likely to exit. You're going to buy, even though it was 20 times more than, you know, the original price. Uh, see, this is one that I'm skepti- skeptical of that example. I actually do find chunking to be valuable. I've used chunking and I'll, I'll perhaps I'll quick describe it, how I've used it in, in my work, but the, the example that was given in this book I thought was ridiculous because, quite frankly, it sounded to me like being rick- nickeled and dimed to death, and I would absolutely not like to buy that way. I just get, give me a price and let me move on. But I do see how some people some people like the thrill of the fight. They like they like to play around with those options and see what they can do and how can they keep it under say fifteen euro or can they keep it under thirty euro to, to get this this good deal. But just backing up a second, how I've used chunking is in the example of task delegation. What I have found is that, and this this works certainly inside the organization. I'm working with somebody inside Sage, or uh, what I've also asked some of my audiences to do if they they have this with with customers. So if there's if they're dependent on customers for for getting something to them in order to continue the work, to break it down into a two step process. And sometimes it's as silly as okay, enter the data into this spreadsheet and rename it, and then rename the spreadsheet and send it back to me. Mm-hmm. And when you, what I've found is that when I do that, is um, it's more likely that the person will meet whatever deadline I give them than if I don't. Now, is it perfect? No, it's not a panacea. It's not a hundred percent of the time. And but, but I do find that, I, and I, I have not, you know, sat sat here with tick marks and and kept formal formal count of this anywhere. So it's my, purely my anecdotal bias. But it seems to me that it works. So. That, that that's my thought on from from that perspective i don't like this example though sure sure another one i found really interesting is you know the idea of priming we've talked before about in restaurants if they play classical music you'll feel wealthier you'll probably spend more you know per table or whatever um, but they they did this in the wine store and when they played french music french wines outsold german wines five to one and when they played german music 
they outsold French German wines, outsold French wines two to one. Now, I guess what this means is, you know, play both, right? On different days, I don't know, rotate um, or get rid of the German wine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't know what you'd play for Napa. But uh, anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And then another one, of course, is this paradox of choice. And uh, I hadn't seen this example before, but they brought up Prius. When Prius was launched, they had one choice. That was it. And the thinking, I guess, I don't know if this was the thinking of Toyota or this has been, you know, a backstory written afterwards. But um, the, the idea was if, if they would have came out with different choices of Prius, people would have been paralyzed because the decision was hybrid or not, or not a hybrid Right. Mm. Once you made that decision, then they didn't want you to think, okay, which hybrid? Because that would appear good. Well, then I'll postpone this and wait to see, you know, which which is the best hybrid for me. So they only give you one choice. Yeah, I wonder if they could have could have modified that a little bit, made it the same basic car, but maybe added some luxury items to the interior or something like that 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 made made it for a better price. So, um, you know, it will. not not sure which which would be better, but uh, I, I see the I see the point of this though of not of having too much choice, especially on something that's a new offering, a new item. Right. Uh, the, the other interesting thing is, you know, a, a lot of criticism of the paradox of choice. In fact, I think Russ Roberts had the author on who wrote a book refuting this paradox of choice. Other, you know, not only can it be replicated, but it's just not true. I mean, look at Starbucks. Right. Mm-hmm. Somebody computed what the number of combinations on a Starbucks menu is. I don't know. It's in hundreds, hundreds of thousands or millions or something. Um, but, it, it, you know, choice isn't always bad. I mean, we walked, just look at the choice you have in a cereal aisle or a wine mm-hmm. aisle or even with whiskey or whatever. I mean, it's not it's not true that too much choice paralyzes us. Yes and no. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's as with anything, context matters. I, I don't know about you. I've in, in certain steak restaurants and I get the wine list. I'm like, I no idea. But maybe that's because they want you to call the sommelier over. I mean, that's that that could be the strategy there to, to confuse the heck out of you with so many different possibilities and choices. The the classic example that's given, and it's not mentioned in this book, is the the jam example, which I believe, and that's what Russ Roberts was talking. That has been refuted, right. or or, or yeah, I should say it more correctly, it's they've been unable to replicate the results right that's from the right. study that was originally done. But more on that later. More on that later. Yep. And and just two more here, Ed, that I have. Um, The status quo bias. You know, they they, we in polls, they say nine out of 10 people favor organ donation. When you look at Germany, the organ donation uh, is 12 percent. In Austria, it's 99 percent. And that's because in Germany, you have to opt into it. In Austria, you have to opt out. You're already put into it. And so this has been documented, you know, in other countries as well. I think Canada, some other Nordic countries have an automatic, don- you're, you're, you're an organ donor unless you opt out. Mm-hmm. Now, it's easy to opt out. You can say religion. They don't really care as long as you just go through that hurdle of opting out. Um, and that, there does seem to be some type of an effect there. And that's just choice architecture. That is choice architecture. The other example that I remember about this, because there's also, in theory, there's there's the null value one too. And this was effectively used by, I believe 
it was either Radiohead or Nine Inch Nails. I can't remember, but I think it may mm. have been Radi- Radiohead when they they released their first self-published album, so to speak. The the way that you paid for it is you went in and you were given the field, which just simply asked how much are you going to pay, and you could put anything in there. You could you put a dollar. You could put whatever whatever amount you wanted in that field before you then clicked the the download. But in order to put zero, you had to put 0.00. You actually had to type, type it, it three times. Like, I'm a cheapskate, I'm not a once. I'm a cheapskate. I'm a cheapskate. Not twice, yeah. but three times. In other words, the, the default value in that case, interestingly enough, was, was null, meaning nothing mm. in it at all. And it would not let you proceed past right. that null value. Right. So you had to put in something. And of course, what people were, what they were hoping is that people would hit zero point zero zero. Now, as I I can't remember the the specifics in terms of the actual dollar amounts, but I recall the story that was written up about this, which I think was in Tech Tech Dirt. And and, and again, this is going back ten years, easy. Uh, that said that they they did make more money per album download than they would have made if they had released through a record company. So it was for for all in all, it was a win for Radiohead. Now, that said, Radiohead at at the time was already a, a well established brand, so it's not like they could have done this and this this was if nobody knew who the heck they were. But right. um, did, did fi- find that interesting that and there's a lot of as you know controversy about this libertarian paternalism and this nudging and what should be the default value. Um, I, I've never understood the fervor over it entirely. But, um, you know, who? but somebody's got to defi- decide what the default value is. Somebody right. has to decide that. That's so. right. And that's the crux of the argument. Uh, one more, Ed, I know we got up against a break here, but one more is loss aversion. Yeah. And, of course, this is one of the most significant findings. Behavioral economics goes back to Kahneman and Tversky and um, their work. Uh, but, you know, we feel two times as, pain- as painful to lose something as to gain the similar amount. So the example they've given in the Ogilvy book is, you'll lose X amount per year if you don't insulate your addict. And that's more effective than saying you will save X amount per year if you do insulate your addict. Mm-hmm. Because again, we feel the loss more intensely than the than the uh, the gain. So really interesting. Now, when we come back, folks, we're going to talk about a recent development for Monday of this week. Actually, it dates back a while, but it really blew up for me on Monday because that's when I first really heard about it. Uh, and it's going to call into question everything we just told you. So, but uh, <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. In the meantime, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. You can give us a podcast rating. Go out to rate this podcast slash TSOE. And also, you can check out our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash TSOE. And at a certain tier, you can get a shout out like Geraldine Carter did. And you can check out Geraldine's podcast, Smart Strategy for CPAs. And also you can find more about her at shethinksbigcoaching.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. 
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking behavioral biases here on the Soul of Enterprise. And, Ron, this is all well and good. But The Economist on Monday came out in their daily chart section with a study that said a study on dishonesty was based on fraudulent data. I'm like, oh, no. Because this is something that you and I have talked an awful lot about in, in in fact we've gone back what i would say seven eight maybe even ten years we've been showing the famous clip of dan Ariely in the economist magazine maybe yep. this is just payback ron maybe they're just they're, they're just they were really ticked off at him for you know sort of making fun of them all of these years and now surprise surprise you know they're they're they're, they're taking their revenge but what, what, yeah yeah now th- that said what what seems to have happened is that a they talk reading now from the article that uh, there a, a, a article has come up from Daniel Herrera is it Daniel? Yeah, Jason. Uh, Jason, Jason Herrera on the death of behavioral economics, calling into question the data that was used in many of these studies, and lo and behold, they they did some analysis on it, and it turns out that it, it does look that it was faked. They were using. Uh, mileage charts where people would fill in how much mileage they've they've gone and the whole notion was is that if you signed this form before you filled it in and said that it was the truth that you were more likely to be honest on the form than if the if the data came first and then you had to sign it afterwards saying that the above information is correct and this brought into account you know maybe we should do this with tax returns maybe the signature the signature should actually be at the top of the form rather than at the bottom of the form um, I guess even on those who prepare the data would that make a difference and it it turns out that they now looked at this field experiment 
And we know for a fact that on mileage, people are going to round to the nearest zero or even five to a certain extent. You probably should see even ever so slightly see an increase in the number of people that that round to a five. But certainly zeros would be more uh, more uh, in, in order. If you go 132 miles, you're more likely to just write down 132. Or if you go 139 miles, you just round it up to 140. And certainly once you get into the thousands, uh, which is what this study was looking at, because I believe this was mileage over the course of a year-long period. That you're you're more likely the more digits that you're gonna that that you're going to the left, the more likely you are to round in some way. And they would expect then that it, looking at the data, you would find that a almost 25% of them should in fact have zeros as the 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 last digit because of this nature of people rounding. Well, what they found in the data that Ariely released was that it was evenly distributed among all of the digits, right around 10%, as you would yeah. think. And that that is it. Now, you might recall this, Ron, but this was this was a this was also used on one of the tests around to, to prove or disprove election fraud in mm-hmm. the twenty the twenty twenty election. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where they were saying that that you would be able to tell based on if any of this data was faked, and as I recall in those stories, that, that most of them came came back and said no, there was there was no evidence that there was anything disparate, because if right. you're making up numbers, you're going to have this tendency. So I I thought this was really interesting. This is certainly damning. Of course, Ariely says, hey, listen, um, you know, it, I, it wasn't my data. I got it from an insurance company. Uh, he wasn't willing to reveal the name of the insurance company, but somebody else found out that they thought it was the Hartford. Uh, the Hartford says that they have no no record of uh, of this, or certainly the data that that got sent to Dan Ariely on this. Uh, they couldn't locate it, but uh, he insists. He Dan Ariely says he that he is willing to take a lie detector test to say that if if I did not fabricate the data, that if if it was in fact a problem fr- fraudulent, he was duped. So. Right. I don't um, know. You know, uh, there's five people that worked on this study, uh, Dan and four, I guess, of his research assistants or whatever, and they all say they were duped rather than dishonest. I mean, I love what the researchers said. They said, we began our collaboration from a place of assumed trust rather than earned trust. Mm-hmm. Wow. There's a behavioral economics reply <laughs> to, I mean, yeah. Ever hear a trust but verify, you know? Right, uh, right. Uh, but and, and Ed, this is from 2012, and I've used this example many times, and we do talk about it in terms of signing the tax return first. But supposedly, uh, the people reported 10, per, 10 and a quarter percent more miles driven who signed the form first, as opposed mm-hmm. to you know turning it over on the back. And the other problem, not just the the random number generator and the fact that people weren't rounding, but the uniform distribution of miles driven. Just as many drove below 10,000 miles as drove between 40 and 50,000 miles, and no one drove over 50,000. Now, listen, 40,000 miles a year is like you're in trucker territory. Mm-hmm. So th- that's, I mean, I can see 30 for some people would be plus 30. Some people would be plus 25 or whatever. But man, a uniform distribution, you're telling me as many people below the drove below 10 is uh, drove between 40 and 50 there's no chance it, yeah. unless your population is truckers and you know grandmas um, mm-hmm. it's just crazy so yeah and boy the economists really um, 
really did a number on this and I'm still waiting to see some of the fallout and I, I haven't I haven't spent enough time on researching some of the fallout I want to see more people's responses but this article does lead, uh, lead you to this Jason Herrera post and and the title is the death of behavioral economics <laughs> it starts out I've got some bad news behavioral economics is dead yeah it's still being taught still being researched but um, it's dead. And he gives two very specific reasons. He says we're f- they, these experiments have, have, are failing to replicate other academics, mm-hmm. other researchers <clears throat> cannot replicate this stuff. This has been a big problem for a long time in all different academic fields, including medicine, by the way. Um, Russ Roberts has done multiple shows on this. And the second reason he thinks behavioral economics is dead, not dying, but dead. That's, I mm-hmm. want to emphasize yeah. this. This is really, and this is a former a collaborator with Dan Ariely. He wrote a right. workbook with him. Uh, the second reason is interventions are surprisingly weak in pra- practice. In other words, the effects, like we just read from that Ogilvy book, uh, are not as great as they're purported to be. And so he deals with the replication failures, and he goes through some things. And he he wrote the identify identifiable victim effect, which was a workbook that he wrote with Dan Ariely. Um, but he said, you know, if you look at uh, priming, we talked about priming in, in our examples from the book. Um, he said this, this, you know, priming has been featured in Nudge. It's been featured in, in Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, he said it's not, it, it, they can't replicate it. Loss aversion, probably the field's most important idea has been not been able to be replicated um and they're finding the effects of a loss aversion to be very very uh minor uh in fact they think losses and benefits are equally effective in driving conversion rates loss aversion he says does exist but only for major losses i think this is why most of us are worried about a catastrophic health you know event or earthquake or fire flood type of thing um, and he even cites an academic paper that accuses Kahneman and Tversky, his late partner, um, that any data that they discovered that didn't fit was dismissed or distorted uh, when it came to loss aversion. Those are pretty damning indictments of, of the are. work of this field. And this guy says, if you can't trust their biggest finding, that calls into question every other effect that they've detailed and experimented on and studied. Uh, and in fact, um, the, the weak effect of, of some of these nudges uh, is the second reason he thinks this field is dead. And he said, UC, he cites UC Berkeley researchers looked at 126 random controlled trials by two nudge units here in the United States. And according to the papers, there was an 8.7% effect in, in the nudge, whatever it was. And the actual turned out to be 1.4%. And we'll link to this guy's blog post or whatever it is. But he says, basically, you know, what, what's happened here? He says, well, behavioral economics provides cookie cutter solutions to complicated problems, right? And he said, but specific problems require specific solutions. And lab experiments on, in contrived put you put kids in contrived environments um, and he thinks he ends by saying, basically, applied behavioral sciences where creativity goes to die. And he even says, Dan Ariely is one of the most creative geniuses I know. But there's something about these behavioral models and biases 
that that you just kind of you kind of look for which one to plug in and you don't provide any wisdom or judgment behind that and this is one of the biggest damning criticisms that others have made of some of this uh, work in this field yeah and two two quick things on this because I know we're coming up against our break well let me just just talk about the one you you and I when we we did a pricing class for the professional price society and I think a couple of other times we did use a nudge exercise to 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 see this where what we had is three different products on the sheet. We asked people to write down uh, the last two digits of their. Well, I don't know if it was social security number. I think it was it phone number or something phone, yeah. instead. Because we were trying to we're trying to, to to get away from any identifiable. Yeah. yeah, thing. yeah. So we had them write write down those the, the the two digits, and then they had to price these three products based based on just a picture of them. And I would we would do that as one of our the first opening exercises. I would collect the data and then we would present it back later when we were getting to to some of these things, uh, to to get to some of these behavioral uh, economic um, ideas. And there was a correlation. I mean, I I, I entered the data in. And, I mean, unless I faked it myself, I don't <laughs> possible I would fudge in the data. But what I what I can say is there was a, there was a correlation. It wasn't that big though. I, I will readily admit that as I as I drew the yeah. the the line that that showed the correlation, it was there, but it wasn't it wasn't big at all. It wasn't substantial. Uh, so I, I guess this sort of plays it out. And we did it multiple times with uh, I would say it wasn't hundreds of people, but it was several dozen. Sure. The, the other thing Ed, that just calls into question is that famous example of the economist. You know, the three different options for one year subscription, a forty two percent increase. Um, that can't be right. It just can't be right. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that when we get back, though. I want to remind folks that they can get a hold of us at asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where we post show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Also, now there's some categories out there so that you can click on those to see the shows that we've done around particular categories. If you've got some examples of other categories that you'd like us to do, please do let us know about that. And you can either do that by sending that email or getting a hold of us on Twitter at, at AskTSOE. Right now, though, a word from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. 
This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are back talking about behavioral biases here on The Soul of Enterprise, and I forgot to do a shout out to our Patreon sponsor, 90 Minds, who do sponsor our Patreon channel. So if you need a mind, somebody who's interested in Sage 100 implementing there, get one at 90minds.com. Ron, I I just want to to jump back a little bit to to some of these examples because I'm having a hard time parsing out what is actual behavioral economics and what... And what's just basic human behaviors when we see certain things like that? Because I, I think I don't think that we can dismiss the entire baby with the bath, per, proverbial baby with the bathwater. There's clearly something to the 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 idea of uh, nudging from a from a default value standpoint. Otherwise, we wouldn't have those those field tested results of Germany versus Austria and organ donors. Now, the debate around that to me is, should there be a default value? And if so, why? Which, which which one should be selected? But it's clear that not that defaulting one way or the other has a significant impact on it. So it, yeah, I don't think I, there's a doubt, right, of that. Yeah, no, I, I this, you know, humans are complicated uh, and we're not, you know, we're not billiard balls, right? You can. You can track the motion of billiard balls or predict it, but you can't tell whether or not your car is going to drive to Kmart or Walmart. You know, mm-hmm. if, if there's road construction or something and you intended to go to Target, and now you have to go to Kmart or whatever. I mean, humans are just really, really – here's one of the biggest criticisms, and this will resonate with our audience and it will resonate with you, Ed. In both um, rational economics, you know, the Mr. Spock side, and the behavioral economics in the models and they are models mm-hmm. all these biases and all that their theories and models there's absolutely no room for surprise none right <laughs> and human and i think this is why george gilder's comment about this when we asked him specifically what do you think about behavioral economics he says i think it's trivial I think this is what he was getting at because there's no room for that that information you know that information theory of surprise, and that's that's big. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Deirdre McClowski has written a, a recent book called Bettering Humanomics, and she says if you if you look at other recent neo behavioral behaviorist fashions such as neuro economics, right, studying mri of your brain lights up whatever mm-hmm. behavioral finance and happiness studies she goes all of these are dubious or they treat creative adults like a flock of little children she said we need they say all these behavioralists merely to observe their behavior omitting for some reason linguistic behavior and this is another problem, you know, this, uh, uh, th- and this was my favorite book of 2019. It was my number one book. It's episode number 275. I don't know how far I got into this book when I did my short recap on that show, but it's called Sense and Sensibility, What Economics Can, f- uh, can Learn from the Humanities by Gary Saul Morrison and Morton Shapiro. And they say, what's the difference between humanities and economics? Stories. 
And this is the book that tried to make the case that great novelists who the authors write understand people better than any social scientist who has ever lived. Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, mm-hmm. Dickens, right? Uh, and one of their lines is, surely no one in his right mind ever thought people are rational to begin with. Why the whole heritage of Western literature has described people as irrational. And the social sciences point to many factors other than reason that shape behavior. Why would philosophers since Socrates have been urging people to act rationally if they always did so anyway? And they, yeah, just, that- go, they just go on and on about... Um, you know, you can't understand human beings without understanding stories and you can't you can't grasp most of what people do by deductive logic. We need stories. And that's their that's their criticism of these models of behavioral economics. They say novels are a distinct way of knowing ethics itself requires judgment, cannot be reduced to theories, models or sets of rules. Economics can't deal with culture, right, because we can't fit it into our math. And same with wisdom. And yet all these things have a big impact on human behavior and behavioral economics can't account for them any better than can rational economics, neoclassical economics. Yeah, we used to have a saying when we would wrap this up because we would talk both about the neoclassical economics and the behavioral stuff that, you know, neoclassical economics explains about 50 percent of the behavior and, and behavioral economics explains the other half. And I, and I think what we're coming to the conclusion is that it's actually only about they only each explain about 25 percent. We're still clueless. The other 50 percent of the there's, time. So there's, just, there's that hidden there's that hidden half. Some some one of the British journalists wrote a book called The Hidden Half. And it's fantastic. That kind of talks about, you know, is it culture? Is it is it nature or nurture? Right. And it's mm-hmm. like it's 50 50 or some combination thereof. And it's like, no, no, there's. Both cult, uh, both nature and nurture are probably only fifty percent. There's another hidden app that we haven't even thought of or discovered yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, some really interesting stuff on that. The, the other thing Ed, that's really interesting about this book, Sense and Sensibility, is is they say so many insights that you read from like an Ariely book or or Thaler, Kahneman, and they mention all these people uh, along with Deirdre. Um, and they praise her work tremendously because of the linguistic storytelling rhetoric side. Um, but they say so many of these insights that we read, we sit there and say to ourselves, being humanists, these guys have humanities, you know, degrees. They say, you mean you had to do a study to prove that? Like, and that's what, that was my reaction when I first saw Dan Ariely live up at the University of Reno. He was talking about religion and, and why are Catholics more honest? You know, now he tied it to confession and the fudge factor and all of that. But it's like, really, you needed a study to realize that religious people were more honest? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, and it's, it's a good point. And, and they bring up a couple of other things. And this even kind of slams um, something we've talked about in the past. But, you know, let's say a man sees a cashmere sweater in the store and he looks at the price tag and says, oh, it's too expensive. But then his wife buys it for him for Christmas. Now, they pull their resources, right? So it doesn't matter. He wouldn't have bought it anyway. But he's thrilled when he opens it up, and even though he's you know, paying for it. And Richard Thaler says, is this irrational? He says, yes, because it's coming out of the same pot. If you didn't want it when you saw it, you shouldn't have wanted it anymore at Christmas. And these guys, right, as humanists, we understand the difference a gift makes. 
for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for now we talked about the christmas show you know the dead the dead weight loss of gift giving and that's yeah, all right. funny and hysterical but then why do so many of us continue to give gifts it just can't be because we're a bunch of irrational idiots there must be something else about human nature well and i think and i think we we talked about that first of all the the, the that that study who knows if this is replicable by the way uh was that spouses were the only ones that 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 valued whatever they were given at 102 percent of the actual price that was paid so there that that was the the one place where it 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 was uh it did make sense to buy a gift but then again it's not it's not the monetary value of the gift it's we, we we i think we mentioned this on the show it is literally it's the thought that counts the fact that your spouse cares enough about you to buy something that you wouldn't buy for yourself, even though you've pulled your resources together, even though the money is shared, it was extraordinarily nice of her and thoughtful to go out and get it for you, regardless right. of the price. They also bring up the or- the market for organs. And mm-hmm. yes, from an economic rationality perspective, we can all make the case, but there's there's enormous arguments on the other side. We're not there yet. We haven't won that argument, and uh, there's good reasons for it, and they can't be modeled by either side of the economics debate. Right. Both sides would lead you to, to have a market for organs, but there's a reason why we don't. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, they, they claim that uh, behavioral economics purports to be adding the human dimension to economic models, but it does nothing of the kind. The, the human beings it imagines behave just as mechanically, only less efficiently. So it's really important to remember that behavioral economics has got its own models, its own, mm-hmm. uh, you know, orthodoxies. Um, and since it leaves out storytelling, I mean, this was Deirdre's big, big claim when she started writing you know, rhetoric and economics and, and all of that, that economists are not good storytellers. Mm-hmm. And storytelling is what separates us from <laughs> animals. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. I, I agree. And there, there is, there's se- several times when I've looked at some of this behavioral stuff, and it was just like, well, that that to me doesn't sound like it's first of all even worthy of study because, it, but how is it even economic? So, what was the uh, oh the the example in the book is that partitioning, which is basically just that that even experienced bartenders will tend to. Pr- to Tend to pour twenty five percent more alcohol if the the glasses are sh- are shorter and wider. How right. is that a behavioral economics problem? That's a that's a sp- spatial geometry issue. Yeah, yeah, right. That's not irrational that that somebody would pour more into a shorter, wider glass. It's just like how hard is it to imagine this the 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 surf not only the surface area but the area of a of a, a, a the volume of a liquid. It's difficult. For us right. to even process that. Yeah. I, you know, John Kay, who wrote a great book called Obliquity, uh, says, if people are predictably irrational, and you know where he got that, <laughs> one mm-hmm. of Dan's books, uh, he said, perhaps they are not irrational at all. Perhaps the fault lies not with the world, but with our concept of rationality. In sure. other words, if we're so irrational, Ed, for predictably irrational and all of that, and the upside of irrational, all these things, we have 237 biases out there or whatever the number is. Um, <laughs> if we're this dumb, how, how do we even know it? How have we been able yeah. to document all this, all these biases? 
That's right, right in right in line with Jules Goddard and his his line about strategy, which was you know it was it wasn't the strategy that was bad as the morons who couldn't execute the strategy, and the morons come back and say, well, don't you think you should have taken the fact that we were morons, morons into, into account, account. When you yeah. put the strategy yeah. in place? That's, that was Henry. That was Henry Mintzberg, by the way. But point oh, it was Mintzberg. Okay, yeah, it was Mintzberg. Um, but but that's a great point. Well, you guys should have known we were idiots. You know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, but yeah. yeah, these are, you know, these are some of the things and I, it is kind of interesting to see how well or how quickly behavioral economics kind of diffused into the profession and just, you know, just among the general populace as well. Yeah. No, interesting stuff. All right, Ron, we're up against our last break. Remind those of you out there, you can contact us by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Already talked about the Patreon channel, already talked about our Rate This podcast. So what I'll leave you with is listen to the word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about behavioral biases. And Ed, you know, the Austrian economists who were probably the first behavioral economists in in all honesty, um, Mises developed this thing called praxeology, which this, which was the science that was preoccupied with the psychology and understanding human decision-making. And he thought that economics was the study of human praxeology under conditions of scarcity, mm-hmm. you know, like you said at the opening. And he, 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 you know, he wrote his book called Human Action because he believed that, that animals behaved, but humans acted. And each of us acts purposefully with a goal in mind, it can be fixed or we can change it frequently, but each of us also learns and therefore action is purposeful. It, mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, we're just not behaving. And, and he did say this in human action. He said, air 
inefficiency, and failure must not be confused with irrationality. He who shoots wants, as a rule, to hit the mark. If he misses it, he is not irrational. He's a poor marksman. Mm. So just this idea of, you know, well, that's just irrational. Um, I've always been uncomfortable with that because calling people irrational is not a good way to persuade anybody. No, no, but it's, it was also intended to provoke to then the whole predictably sure. irrational concept. But so here's my question, Ron. We, we, we have talked about a lot of this stuff, anchoring. We talked, we, we have used that, that uh, Economist magazine ones in the, the courses that we use. A lot of the, the examples from Rory Sutherland that we've incorporated are at least attributed in some way to behavioral economics. But I come back to the question I think I talked about earlier is, is this really behavioral economics or are these just other things that observations about human behavior that just exist and somebody just kind of bundled them all up and, and slapped this label behavioral economics on it? Because I, I really do think that things like choice architecture, putting choices before a customer is far better than giving them a range of between Absolutely. this and this. Uh, so, so I'm just curious. Do you, do you think that that we we dismiss all of this, or that's just behavioral economics, and we 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 can't uh, incorporate that into the the conversation anymore? No, I think we try and maybe get out of this whole debate of are we are we Spock or Homer Simpson? You mm -hmm. know, I think it's a false construct. If you think about how, and if you go back and read one of Thaler's books about how he developed. You know, he had a chalkboard or a whiteboard in his office, and he would write down these interesting questions that you know neoclassical economics couldn't answer about rationality, like why do we leave tips, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it seems to me like behavioral economics grew out of attacking the rational economists, you know, the theory of of rationality, which was just a, a an assumption. It was never a, a model. I mean, even Friedman, Landsberg. Levitt, all of the all of the people on the rational side said, look, this is an assumption. We're not saying there's a human like this. We're mm -hmm. saying this is an assumption that helps us understand how the world works and does also lead to its own pretty good conclusions, like why is movie theater popcorn so expensive? Why is there 99 cent pricing? We didn't get those answers from behavioral economics. We got those answers from the rationalists and the presumption of rationality. So I, I think both have insights and maybe economics just needs to return to economics and, and or what Deirdre says, humanomics. And let's humanomics. Bring, bring in some storytelling and, and all that, because I agree with you. I don't want to give up options. I don't want to give up your anchor price. Uh, I don't want to give up some of your chunking strategies that seem to be working. Um, there, there's probably other things that we thought about it. Nud nudging. We talked about nudging. The, some choice architecture, you know, yeah. what's the default? I mean, the 401k studies I have seen, and there mm -hmm. is a big impact there. Now, it was not as big as the two-thirds or three-fourths that I read in some popular media accounts. It was more like maybe a fourth to 30% or something like that. But it did nudge people more into a 401k, and they saved more as well out of future raises. Yes. And th there was one in the, the book about that, right? Where it, where they, 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 I forget what the uh, the effect was, but it's, they, they said it, instead, instead of giving, pe telling people the wonders about their retirement account and how much money they're go going to save, tell them that if they join, they'll, they'll be entered into a, a raffle for a $10,000 or $100,000 prize. And that created far more incentive for people 
this because it was a more immediate gain than something in the future. And like I, to me, is that a behavioral economics thing or is that rational to say, oh, I for this small thing that I do today, I have a huge potential potential payout for a short term gain. And is it just short term versus long term thinking that's been part of us since we emerged from the savannah? Right, right. Yeah, I think we all people have different time preferences, right? That's why more. Yeah. Some people are more tolerant of risk than others. Some people are happy to be employees. Other people need to be serial entrepreneurs and be constantly out there on the ledge. Um, you know, that that's what makes human humanness great. It can't be modeled. Yeah. And then which brings us to even some current events, too, which maybe we'll talk, pick this up on our bonus episode available on our Patreon channel is, you know, what what's the impact of behavioral economics potentially on trying to get more people vaccinated? Uh, because we've seen some strategies employed there, too, with with, first of all, just outright payments for for certain people. Hey, you know, companies have done this. I think even the state of Ohio did did this or no, yeah. Ohio or, did the, or, the lottery, 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 the yeah. lottery system where they would have, I don't know, five million dollar winners or, or something for people who who uh, who got got jabbed. So they've employed some of these concepts on that. And, you know, I'm curious as to your thoughts on on the, those implications as well. Well, you talked about Delta. Was it last week or the week before Greg brought it up about the $200 to your health insurance? If you if you yeah. don't get vaccinated, they're going to start charging. So that's more of the stick approach. Yep. And then, of course, there's carrot approaches. Uh Apparently, the Biden administration is going to uh, force companies with over, what is it, a thousand employees? I, thought about, I read a hundred. Oh, 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 it could be a hundred. I, I just might have misremembered that. But yeah, it's going to be mandatory that you get vaccinated or you're going to have weekly uh, uh, COVID tests mm-hmm. if you don't. Um, I think that's a real interesting legal question if you can do that. It is a legal question, but I'm, I'm not I'm not so but, much yeah, interested yeah, in the I'm politics of yeah. it as I am from, from the, the behavioral standpoint is are there... There are strategies that potentially could be employed here, and and the impact just on pricing and subscription-based pricing too, because I, 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 we, you know, we see things happen all the time, and we even comment on it, like uh, putting the 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 most expensive option in the middle as opposed to left to right or top to bottom, um, right. and and I, and I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable about some of the behavioral stuff too, is like how much of it is manipulation. How much of it is yeah. it, it, it is intentional sleight of hand, intentional manipulation, knowing what we know about people in this way. But I guess if it's I guess if some of these things are false, then it can't be manipulative now, can it? Well, well, you know, that's one of the biggest uh, criticisms from uh, Mark D. White, who wrote The Manipulation of Choice, Ethics and Libertarian Paternalism. He's a mm-hmm. big critic of the choice architecture and the defaults. And all of that. Um, so, yeah, we're just going to have to keep our eye on the set. I think there's going to be a lot more on this. We're going to see is, see some academics come out and really start attacking some of these ideas. And let's see how the behavioralists like Thaler and Kahneman respond. Yeah, and Rory. I'm very be, and, be yeah. curious as to what Rory would have to say. So. Me too. And I'll just end. Let, let, let me just quote this from Dostoyevsky because I, I love this. He said, if someone would someday truly discover a formula for all our desires and caprices there would be no caprices at all there will be no more incidents and adventures in the world look to literature for wisdom yep uh, yeah maybe let's just stop trying to predict human behavior yeah yeah 
All right, Ron, what are we going to get next week? Next week, Ed, we're going to talk about the, uh, we're going to have a subscription economy update. I don't know how long it's been since we've done a subscription show, but that's what we'll be doing. All right. Look forward to seeing you 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com for more information on the show and for upcoming shows uh, and including additional resources and things that we talked about today. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 